Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. As always, every week we bring you a lot of science and we get a bit lost in it, but we find our way out eventually. I guess I need to get lost again the following week. Isn't that how it works, Katriona? We have to get lost to sort of work it all out and untangle it, but we get there. (laughs) Getting lost is part of the fun, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's when you're looking around, you don't know where you are, but you're discovering new things. That's what... It's a good metaphor for science. I think. <laughs> um, speaking of science and Katriana, um, thank you for joining us. What have you got um, for to interest and, and infotain us well, this week? Chris, I'm talking about a certain type of waste, and, and I wonder, when I talk about waste in, in water, like rivers and lakes and things, what do you think of? Um, well, I think of, you know, things like sewage, I suppose. Mm. Mm-hmm. I think of um, toxic waste, that was just the big fear of the 1980s and the Ninja Turtles and stuff like that. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> so maybe maybe some sort of mutants and superpowers, that sort of thing. <laughs> oh, I wish. Or like litter traps. That's what I think of when I think of waste oh, in water. yeah, of yeah. course, of course. Those big, yeah, litter traps you see in the river, yeah. But I'm going to actually be talking about a waste that we can't see. It's pharmacological waste, so waste from yeah. medicines and other things like that that are going down our drains. Okay, so I guess these are things that um, uh, they're, they're chemicals that are probably meant to be quite potent, so maybe in small amounts they can still be harmful. Is that the idea? Yeah, so it's like medicines that we're taking, and if we we some of it out, it does go into the ecosystem. Okay, um, that's a scary thing we <laughs> thought about as much as I should, I think. Um, all right, uh, well, I hope you've got some, some good news for us. Yeah. People are working on it. I think that's the good news. <laughs> okay, good. That's good to know. Well, I look forward to hearing about, um, I don't know, some sort of hope for the future, perhaps, with that. <laughs> um, well, me, I'm I'm looking at the past. Um, I got a bit suckered into watching a, a new, a bit of a new TV show on Netflix that people were kind of a bit of an uproar about. Um, it's a fringe archaeology show let's put it that way called ancient apocalypse um it was actually quite difficult to watch um for a reason that is also the reason why i'm not going to really kind of criticize the archaeology involved in it because the um the host of it has this particular theory that there was this um advanced civilization in the last ice age on earth that um, was wiped out by some cataclysm. Um, but he has this tactic where he's aggressively hostile towards archaeologists, um, which a lot of these people do this, it seems. I also encountered someone today on the on the internet who was kind of claiming the exact opposite thing, which is basically that ancient civilizations like the Roman Empire didn't mm. exist. And so, again, this person was going aggressive towards everybody else. And I've seen this in, with um, these kind of people in the past. It's sort of a preemptive strike that it's difficult to criticize them because then it's like they've already said, oh, everyone hates me. And then this is personal, yeah, or yeah, or that you know the um the archaeologists are ignorant and 
close to new ideas. So when the archaeologists criticise the science, they go, see, told you so. Mm. Um, and it's an interesting thing, actually, in archaeology, because I think it is actually particularly vulnerable to these kind of things. I mean, you know, all kinds of sciences have their cranks, but... When it comes to things like archaeology, um, people would much rather watch a TV show claiming, say, that Atlantis was real than one saying that it wasn't. So it's actually, yeah, it's it's quite vulnerable to these kind of claims because they get a lot of attention uh, and people are fans of this kind of fantasy stuff. But yeah. um yeah, again, it makes it really difficult for me to to, um, to attack. So instead, I'm going to look at one of the kind of scientific aspects of this claim, um, which involves the claim that there was an extinction event about 13,000 years ago that was caused by an asteroid or a comet hitting the Earth. I'm sorry, um, Chris, I don't think that that happened. That's not real. Well, <laughs> look, look. Catch it. I look, I, you know, I'm not going to get into that. I'm going to get into the science behind it. All so right, all right. you can say what you want. Um, <laughs> I'll let you present the facts. You can try and be your aggressive person. I'm going to present the facts as I see them, <laughs> or that have been published in peer reviewed research, because it turns mm-hmm. out there have been some developments in this and some recent developments in this area, which is, it turns out to be quite interesting. It's probably yeah, an area cool. of of prehistory that most people don't know much about. So it's, yeah, it's worth talking about. Um, there's a story that I bookmarked ages ago and I like, couldn't find a way to shoehorn it in and was like, oh yeah, now I can bring that up. And there's been developments in it since. So this, this is a great excuse. <laughs> so yeah, that's me and that's Katriona. And yeah, we have plenty of science for you. So yeah, let's get on with the show. So there's an accumulation of various contaminants in our water, especially given that we have emerging contaminants like microplastics, which I think a lot of people are talking about right now. Um, But maybe one that we don't think about so much is pharmacological waste. And neither of these get filtered out by our current wastewater treatment plants because they're way, way too small. I mentioned that we can't see them. So I could easily go down a rabbit hole of all the different types of waste, but I'm I'm mostly going to focus on pharmaceuticals and how it impacts both us and marine wildlife Um, because we're literally medicating our waterways with everything that slips through. So I, I kind of alluded to before that prescription drugs can enter our water supply when patients release traces in their urine or some people even just flat out flush unused meds down the sink or the toilet I don't know mm. why that's why you dispose of them, but people do it. <laughs> so 50 to 60% of the active ingredients of some pharmaceuticals like estrogen in the birth control pill, um, they're flushed out in our urine. So they go through oh. our bodies and then we're flushing out like 50 to 60% of them. Um, Is that like an unused portion of the, the medication? Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like, you know, the whole vitamin thing and you're like, oh, if you take vitamin sublets when you supplements yep. when you don't need them, it's expensive pee. <laughs> um, but the thing is, like with these pharmaceuticals, they're targeting receptors that are on our cells and, and the drugs are designed to target them. But these receptors are evolutionarily conserved among different animal groups. So the same receptors that are on the cells of you and I are also very, very similar to the receptors on like other cells in the animal kingdom, like whether it's fish or turtles or anything like that. Wow. So yeah, these medicines that are developed for us, for humans, can also have the same or a similar effect on non-target species like fish. So 
firstly, I wanted to mention um, the psychoactive pollutant or antidepressant Prozac. Yes. Um, fluoxetine, I think is it? Mm. Yeah, so Prozac's just the, the um, brand name. But yeah. yeah, traces of antidepressants are turning up in tissues of insects and spiders that live near streams. And the active ingredient um, has been found in water habitats all around the world, including here in Australia. Um, And if you think about it, its purpose is to change the behavior and mood for people with depression, and it kind of is doing that in wildlife too. Um, So Professor Bob Wong, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Bob Wong, but he's at at Monash University and looked at what the exposure of fish to Prozac specifically would do, and his team found that it disturbed their foraging behavior or their ability to escape from predators, which, you know, in this was only done in a lab, but if you think about what it might do in the wild, it would potentially affect their survival if they can't, you know, get food the same way or if they can't swim away quickly. Um, But Another big one that I've already mentioned, a a drug that ends up in our waterways is the contraceptive pill. And the active ingredient is literally literally like synthetic estrogen. Um, And this is known as an endocrine disrupting chemical because it disrupts the delicate balance of hormones in us as well as other animals. Um, So in people, obviously, that's, that's the point. You disrupt the usually monthly hormone cycle so that um, women don't get pregnant. But but what does it do in animals? So before answering, I kind of want to just point out that there are many types of endocrine disruptors in our waterways, and we honestly don't know what the impacts might be yet. People talk about things like um, some plastics, like the BPA. Isn't that one of the ones yeah. that people point to as an endocrine disruptor? Yeah, BPA is a massive one. So, yeah, that's in plastics and, and fertilizers and things. So, yeah, essentially they're all doing a very similar thing. They're, they're mimicking and interfering with our hormones. Um, so studies have seen abnormalities in the genitalia of both terrestrial and aquatic life due to the exposure of endocrine disruptors like the contraceptive pill and, Chris, as you said, um, BPA. Essentially feminizing male fish and even alligators, turtles, and frogs. Oh. Yeah. That's a bit – it's complicated because, like, they are talking about a lot, a lot of different kind of, I suppose, you know, families of animals. Yeah. Um, they have different kind of evolutionary histories and different kind of response to, to things. And, yeah, and they're all being affected in this way. Yeah, 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 yeah. But if you – like, it must be that, you know, these receptors for the hormones are just so, so – basic in terms of evolution Mm. that they're so similar across all of these different groups because yeah Yeah. we're very different to fish (laughs) so that was i was wondering like when you talked about the the prozac is Mm. that you know these laboratory tests show that it could um could have that effect but you do kind of wonder i guess well, what is the actual level yeah um that is going to be out there because surely it's dose specific but we talked about with these these ones this is actual seeing the effects on animals in the in the wild yeah yeah absolutely so over the past decade feminine or feminized male fish have been discovered in 37 different fish species in lakes and rivers throughout north america europe and other parts of the world so yeah like people are actually seeing the effects and the impacts of this in the wild and that presumably will affect their reproduction and things like that yeah yeah absolutely um so 
for example, um, there there are some types of fish that, um, well, well, in actually in many species in, in across the animal kingdom, females often choose the males to mate with. Um, but there's a, a certain type of fish species, and I can't pronounce the name, <laughs> but um, essentially they go one of two ways. Either the, the females choose who they want to mate with, and usually they do that based on color because they're like, oh, good color, good genes. <laughs> but um, the other way is that a male can sort of um, penetrate aggressively. And so what what scientists are seeing is that this is happening more and more. So they're going for the aggressive penetration and so females aren't choosing anymore and that's affecting the gene pool because you're eliminating that kind of the the choice yeah oh geez that's a complicated situation (laughs) yeah yeah um and so you know when when you're getting all these fish that are being feminized like you know i'm I'm all for feminism but not like this um (laughs) (laughs) uh you're essentially you know like skewing the population and this is actually how some people are looking into biocontrol like forms of biocontrol for invasive oh, fish, fish species yeah if you if you turn them all into like one sex they can't reproduce anymore so i mean obviously dave that's like something that should be use of biocontrol and we are doing is unintentionally yes yeah then yeah. it's pretty clear that's going to be have, have major problems yeah yeah, and I and I might add, like with the biocontrol, it's very controlled and also done in a completely different way. They're not just given drugs to <laughs> to fish. So, so what? Like, what do we know? What can be can be done about this? Because, um, I mean, I'm thinking about, for instance, how things would say get in waterways here in, mm. in Australia, and like um, pharmaceutical drugs, in particular, you would expect to go through the sewage system. Mm. Um, you're saying they pass, say they pass through our sewage treatment. They're not eliminated by those sort of plants that go then go out of the ocean is that what's happening yeah i think um now that we're more aware of it i I think awareness is a really good thing um but because we've been aware of things like um microplastics for Mm. so long and pfas which is a really really big one that um the the forever chemical that, that people mention um it means that scientists around the world are actually looking for solutions um, because once you know about the problem, you can start looking for solutions. Mm. And so with PFAS, for example, there are definitely ways now that, that people have found to break down those bonds yeah. and break down those chemicals. So hopefully now that we know that this is a problem, people, um, maybe chemists, can get onto it like to, to figure out how can they break it down so that the active ingredients are no longer floating around in the water. Um but yeah, there's no, I guess, easy solution to stopping drugs and chemicals from entering our waterways. It's it's difficult to just get rid of or ban products because sometimes when we realize that that something is a pollutant, we ban it. But um, mm. you know, th- these are obviously very useful to us. Um, so if we take a look at the whole life cycle of these products, we can get. Um, pharmaceutical companies to do a bit more research into the impact of these products once we've taken them. So rather than just saying, oh, you know, we've made them, it's now on the consumer. If pharmaceutical companies kind of have a look at what happens after we take them um, and take a little bit, a little bit more responsibility as well. I'm not saying it's just on them, but, Mm. um, you know, they, they can certainly um, look at it, but also, you know, we can be more mindful, especially when disposing of unused medications. Like maybe, 
maybe it like you know was somewhat expired or whatever for for us and we're like oh well we won't take that but you know it goes into the environment and might still have an impact i wanted to if there's if it is things that um, we are peeing out there's an opportunity to say more target the dose so that it's not being wasted it's it you know it is yeah it's not going through the system as much Mm. or or something along those lines um yeah because you're right though the um you know it'd be good for the pharmaceutical companies to take uh, responsibility for it, but it, that's been talking about for a long <laughs> time with yeah. plastics. <laughs> that's and, hard. Yeah, and they tend to push it back onto consumers, I think, the plastics yes. manufacturers, yeah. Yeah, so I think it's kind of got to be everyone. Yeah, but you're right, though. The first step is being aware of the problem and then, mm. yeah, being able to work on the solutions. Yeah. I think the reason that, like, the, the dose has to be a little bit higher is that, you know, everyone's metabolism is so different. Mm. But I guess if we did do the research and like, you know, what is the minimum dose we can have in a tablet that's effective for everyone. Yeah. Or different ways of delivering it or yeah. Yeah. Yeah, More efficient ways. Yeah. I certainly know a lot of um, people who are looking into using machine learning and and things like that to, to really work out the efficiency of drugs. So maybe that's a good use for it. Excellent. So a bit of hope. (laughs) That's what we we need. Congratulations on your discovery, which may well prove to be among the most significant in the history of science. I cannot accept half-baked theories that sell newspapers. I'm I'm a scientist. Who are you who are so wise in the ways of science? A most distinguished scientist whose name we know, even in the wild of Transylvania. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you are listening to Lost in Science. Uh, you're listening to Lost in Science, and I am lost in the well, the end of the last ice age. Ice ages happen on Earth, which is where there are more glaciers. I suppose the ice caps expand, we have more glaciers. Uh, you can see evidence, certainly, of, of past glaciers in, in many continents. Um, the last ice age ran for around 115,000 years ago to around... 11,700 years ago is kind of when it's considered to have fully concluded. Mm. Now, what causes them isn't well understood. Um, you know, there are many theories out there, some, some candidates, like there could be changes in the Earth's orbit. There are actually you know, fluctuations. Yeah. Um, there is the continents. We know they move around, and that affects things like, um, I guess, you know, air and water flow uh, and various other things like that. And there is, of course, uh, as we are very aware of now, um, the um, constitution of the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's often hard to pinpoint cause and effect there in that. Um, often it seems like the atmosphere acts as a feedback mechanism um, rather than necessarily being the original cause of it because if it is the atmosphere cause, then you've got to figure out what caused the change in the atmosphere. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Look, look, there was actually believed to be a period, you, you know, hundreds of millions of years ago when the Earth went through, possibly went through a snowball Earth phase, and this is mm-hmm. a case where essentially um, you get the cold temperatures kind of locked in, and it's hard to get out of a snowball Earth scenario, it's like a fully frozen Earth. Um, that's not what we're talking about with ice ages. Ice ages are kind of not quite that extreme, and the, as you yeah. said, we do come out of them periodically. Um, but look, whatever the cause is, something the last ice age did finish, but something interesting happened around. We're not still the in end an ice, ice age. age. No, no, it's it's um we don't consider that. I mean, the people that is debated sometimes with their yeah. constitutes an ice age, but um you can see you know from um paleoclimate records that there was you know the 
you know, from ice cores and things like that. Mm. Uh, and that's something I will get to. Um, oh, okay. There's something interesting happened around the end of the last ice age. So the temperature started warming around 15,000 years ago, but then around 13,000 years ago, it suddenly dropped. And this was lasted then for another, say, thousand or so years. And this is a period that is known as the Younger Dryas. It's um, D-R-Y-A-S. And it's named after a, a, a flower, um, Dryas octopetala, um, that is found in the alpine tundra. And they're often found to be abundant here, kind of at the end of a, a glacial period. So, yeah, this is known as the Younger Dryas period after this particular flower. Mm-hmm. Good there. Yeah, um, and... Yeah, it's kind of a weird thing. So the main theory of what, what caused this is that possibly that the, when the, the glaciers started melting, they released a lot of fresh water into the oceans, in particular the Atlantic Ocean, which disrupted the Gulf Stream and reversed the warming. Hmm. Um, but there are others who have claimed that there was some sort of asteroid strike similar to the one that killed the dinosaurs six million years ago. Um, because a lot of the megafauna in North America, things like mammoths and things, went extinct around the same time. Now, this is another thing that's important to point out. This is um, basically a Northern Hemisphere story we're talking about right. here. So this uh, Younger Dryas period is very visible in ice cores from Greenland. But you look at Antarctic ice cores, there is kind of, uh, they show, you know, indications of the past temperature. They show a dip certainly in temperature around that time, but it's nowhere near as pronounced as in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, and when we're talking about extinctions, that's kind of um, very much kind of a North America story we're talking about with this because the, these animals did not go extinct at the same time all over the world. Um, in Siberia, mammoths seem to have lasted quite a bit later. In mm-hmm. Australia, for instance, um, some of the megafauna here, like the, the giant wombats, the diprotodons, went extinct um, quite a bit earlier than that. Right. Um, now, there is obviously still a lot of controversy about uh, human role in megafauna extinctions um, because it often seems to happen after humans have arrived on a continent. But it can be hard to, to pinpoint cause and effect there as well. Um, but, you know, we're not really looking at that. We're looking at this question of whether there was an asteroid strike. And it certainly yep. doesn't seem that if it was something, it didn't cause a global mass extinction because it wasn't observed all over the world. And obviously it wasn't all animals, you know. The um, mm. the mammoths died out, but a lot of animals didn't. But you could argue that it's similar for, you know, the, the big asteroid that um, killed the dinosaurs, right? They didn't all get wiped out at well, once. Well, it wiped out everything, but it, it yeah. wiped out a very large proportion of, right. the, of the species. Um, so this is a, a smaller proportion, yeah, this one you're yeah. referring to. Yeah, okay. yeah. Um, but look, the proponents of this um, impact theory have claimed to have found things like um, a black bat, they call it, a layer of burnt material in their geological mm-hmm. record, with what they believe are glass spherules, sometimes they claim they're nano-diamonds, things that could be created by high temperatures and pressures, and mm-hmm. rare elements like platinum. But um, a lot of this evidence is disputed, and people generally are not convinced until you find an impact crater. Um, that was the case with the... Um, the extinction 66 million years ago for the dinosaurs. Um, The smoking gun essentially was the crater that was found on the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico. Mm. Um, Before that, it was kind of a controversial theory put together, put forward by some physicists rather than geologists. (laughs) Um, A common thing we found a lot in science is that physicists like to come in um, 
and uh, yeah, I think they know better than everyone else. Um, the the, <laughs> the main proponent of the um, the younger Dryas theory, though, I believe, was a nuclear chemist rather than specifically a physicist, a related discipline, perhaps. Um, <laughs> and you can but, say this. I can say, <laughs> but this, I yes. couldn't. <laughs> But yeah, so look, I mean, some of the proponents have claimed that maybe it was like uh, a comet that broke up and there was like, it, it exploded in the air rather than leaving a crater. Mm-hmm. Um, but others have disputed this thing. It doesn't really fit the claimed evidence. Others have questioned, like I said, the actual evidence themselves. So really yeah. finding a crater would be the thing that would, would um, justify this. And there's sort of some excitement in 2018 when there was a, a, a large crater found in Greenland, known as the mm-hmm. Hiawatha Crater, because it's in the Hiawatha glacier um and this was discovered um basically there was uh, a project from nasa that was basically tracking changes in um polar ice for obvious reasons and um some uh some scientists noted there was a conspicuously semicircular section at the edge of a particular ice sheet um, so they basically went over and they used radar to map this depression. They found it was this enormous crater about 300 meters deep. This was like, yeah, very exciting. Cause you find a large crater that was previously unknown. Finding a crater anywhere on earth is an exciting thing. Yeah. Especially as like a mysterious crater that no one had seen before. Um, but you know, the question then was also, when did this happen? Is this possibly the, the candidate for the, the younger Dryas impact? And there were some indications that it could be the case. So the crater seemed to be quite well preserved. And like glacier ice really tends to scour the um, the uh, the landscape. And so the fact this was still visible, they, they thought maybe it meant it was quite younger. Um, and they also looked at layers in the ice and found that it was fairly good layers going back to around 11,700 years ago, which was the end of the Younger Dryas period. And before that, it was much more kind of jumbled up. But um, that's not, you know, necessarily convincing episode because of the evidence, because other people said, oh, there could be other reasons for this um, for this, um, this effect. But it was actually looking good for a while. And... Like I said, in 2018, there was quite a bit of excitement about it, and the younger Dryas impact people got a bit excited too, saying that this has basically um, justified their theory. Mm-hmm. Um, however, this was dashed a bit by some research published earlier oh. this year, in fact, <laughs> um, where they basically got um, minerals, sand and, and other minerals, from the impact crater itself, and they did some dating um, using radioactive elements. Um, this was done by two separate teams, some in Denmark, some in Sweden. Um, the team in Denmark um, basically heated the, the grains of sand till they released argon gas, where they could look at the elemental composition of the argon, the, sorry, the isotope composition of the argon. And um, in Sweden, they looked at the mineral zircon and they looked at the ratio of uranium to lead within this mineral. And this gives you a fair bit of good radioactive dating, gives you a fair bit of good name idea of the geological age. And what they found is it was in fact, wait for it, 58 million years old. Oh. So much, much, much older than our Ice Age uh, impact. Um, so it kind of really dashes the hopes. Um, what's really interesting about this though, study is because you think, okay, so these people have analysed it, surely there's going to be still debate about their techniques. But um, the the people who published the discovery back in 2018 were involved in this later study. And mm-hmm. so there's not really any dispute. You know, they agree 
Um, they're the ones who were saying that it could have been um, you know, 12,000 years old. And now yep. they agree. They were involved in the study that found it was 58 million years ago. So there's not much argument anymore. Um, would they know what happened? Like, you know, if it's big enough that they thought maybe it could have triggered this event, you know, yeah. 12,000 12, years ago, like, do they know what maybe it triggered 58 million years ago? Well, basically, no, they don't. Um, okay. uh, and that's that's a really good question. Um, so, as I said, this was kind of, it's like it's a large, it's probably in the top 10% of size of craters found on Earth. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's still not as large as the one that hit 66 million years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, it was never believed that it was said to be a global extinction event. They were looking yeah. at more local impacts, and perhaps it mm-hmm. would have had an effect on the, the ice and the melting of the ice in Greenland, and that's what could mm-hmm. have caused this climate effect, rather than, say, a global catastrophe like the, uh, the end Cretaceous one. Um, I, look, I don't know much about the 50 million years ago as well. I mean, clearly things would have taken a while to recover from mm. the extinction of the dinosaurs. You know, a lot of um, a lot of things. It took millions of years for um, life to recover from that event. And so, you know, maybe there wasn't the large, as much large fauna to be impacted by it, the fauna and the flora. But um, mm. look, now that they found it, I'm sure there'll be a lot of, in the age of it, there'll be a lot of work to try and find mm. what climate impact it would have had. Um, but yeah, it kind of dashes the idea that this was the, the smoking gun for the younger dryers. Mm. Um, now, if this um, Netflix documentary is anything to go by, the, <laughs> the younger dryers impact people haven't given up. They've gone back to their other <laughs> kind of comet theory. Um, and, you know, it seems like the pseudo archaeologists are in the meantime hanging their fedoras on this, this theory as their explanation for their, um, for their uh, civilizations being wiped out. But look, <laughs> until there is actual you know, proper evidence for it that everyone can agree on. I think it will still remain one of these um, minority, if not a fringe theory in archaeology. Mm. Well, you know, it, it could be somewhere out there, hidden, tucked away. We just Absolutely. have to it wait. It could well be there. It could well be there. It could just be, like I said, um, melting glaciers or some other thing. We don't know how, like I said, we don't know how ice ages end anyway, so mm. it's probably not yeah. that surprising if there was a bit of a hiccup at the end of the last one. But, yeah. yeah. Um, I'm sure that the puzzle will be solved eventually. And that's it for another episode of Lost in Science. Lost in Science is recorded for 3CR in Melbourne on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And it airs across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We would love you to get in touch with us. You can email us at lostinsci at gmail.com or you can find us on Facebook where Lost in Science on 3CR or on Twitter where we're at Lost in Science 1. You can find us on your favourite podcast app where if you get the chance, please give us a good rating and review as that will raise us up in the search rankings so other people can find the science. Or you can listen to us however you listen to us now. We're at the same time every week when we all get Lost in Science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.